Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Einen wunderschönen guten Morgen allerseits. Bonjour, bonsoir and hola. Thank you very much for downloading the Never Strays Far podcast with myself, Ned Bolting, and David Miller. It's brought to you in association with the two companies we both founded and of which we are enormously proud. Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. So, enjoy. Ciao, ciao. Hello, David. Hello, Ned. You talk about never strays far. I've strayed quite a long way from base camp, I have to say, on this occasion. You, where are you, Ned? I'm in... Um, God, what's the name of the place? <laughs> Borneo. So many pla- You're in, in Malaysia. I'm in Malaysia. I'm on the Malaysian Peninsula now, um, just having watched stage two of the Tour de Langkawi. And uh, okay, there's okay. plenty to say about that. Plenty. Got plenty of stuff that I want to uh, hear your opinion about, having grown up in Hong Kong. And the Far East is yep. not a place I know very well. So, but... Listen, David, we'll come to that, but I know that our regular podcast listeners will want a little roundup of all the racing <laughs> that's going on. Yes, because yes, they will. Because suddenly it happens in February, doesn't it? it? Like, having had absolutely nothing, all of a sudden, boom, it's all over the place. And it's really yeah, it's, weird. It's, it never rains, it pours. And this is where, and it does, a lot of races that people just forget about the rest of the year. All of a sudden, yeah. you're seeing these races pop up that literally just, they're only relevant while they're on. And then yeah. they disappear again until the next year. And we've got, we've got a lot of those on at the moment. That's so true. It feels like it, it, all the races while they're on just feel incredibly important. And then, and then you're right, they finish. And then everyone completely forgets about them until next February. Um, but we do obsess about it. But, and also the other thing is, David, they're all televised now. I mean, and this, this simply wasn't the case, you know, not so long ago. The Etoile de Bessege, for example. When was that ever televised when, when we were growing up? Yeah, it's true actually, and I think I think it probably was right in the eighties, nineties when there was when it was still big enough to be on national stations, and then all of a sudden, I think now with the let's face it, it's, it's actually become a lot more accessible to to televise a race, whereas there was a, a period of time there where it just couldn't be afforded. So yeah, I think we're we're benefiting one of the benefits, one of the many of the internet and uh, the reduced cost of producing these things allows us to see much more bike racing than we ever have done before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will come back to the to the to the subject of how to produce live television coverage of bike races, David. Given Uh-oh. my experience of the last couple of days, <laughs> I will okay. return to that subject. Don't let me. But um, anyway, Etoile de Bessage. Uh, I haven't seen much of it really. Uh, well, I've seen none of it, if I'm entirely honest. And as far as I can make out, everyone seems to have crashed all the time, repeatedly. I don't know what yeah, the weather's been like. In the, but I mean, uh, but it's, um, Tony Gallopan, I think he's broken a wrist and he's not the only one. So everyone seems Moschetti, to have Moschetti, fractured pelvis. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, Bessage is one of those ones where it is a, a lot of these early season races are so nervous because everybody's coming in all guns blazing. Uh, they've come off their winter training. Everyone's a little bit insecure, wants to test their form. A lot of pressure from sponsors and team management. And so you actually find some of the sketchiest pelotons of the year and riding is in these first weeks until everybody fi- finally calms down a little bit. So I think Bessege is really reaping that right now. 
Is that one that you used to do? No, no, you never raced before, Mark. I did. You know, you it was one of my it, first. Yeah. yeah, it was one of my first pro races. I got I got fourth there once here as, as well. Miller. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those classic, just French like Grand Prix Marseille is to a yeah. med. Uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it's a staple of the French calendar, and it's always been a bit mad like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you've drawn the short straw if you're there. Um, the uh, Valenciana, just down the road from you in um, in Catalonia, it's the next next region down, isn't it, Valencia? Yeah, it is. So Catalonia stretches down the coast, and then Valencia. It's about five hundred k's from here because we're North Catalonia. But uh, Valencia is the if you've, if Etoile de Bessèges is the French opening stage race, then Valenciana is the the Spanish opening. So each country has their sort of opening race, and Valenciana is that one. It's a great race. Uh, but also, I mean, with respect to Etoile de Bessèges, which is uh, obviously you know acquired a lot of French stars on its start list. If you look down the runners and riders at uh, Valencia, it's an amazing start list. It always is actually really good. Uh, it's a, it's amazing. It's almost kicked off uh, as it finished at the Vuelta España last year with uh, Tade Pogaccia and Valverde yeah. battling it yeah. out in the first summit finish and Pogaccia coming out on top. So Just cruised uh, past him. That is a clip I did see, actually. And must have, Valverde oh. must have looked around and gone, no, hang on, whoa, whoa. I know, I know. That doesn't just, happen. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't. Valencia, that's, uh, that's almost a stage I think Valverde's won multiple times. So that would come as a shock to him. And it bodes very well for Pogaccia and it bodes oh. very badly for e- everybody, everybody else. Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite, um, I, haven't, I honestly haven't been following it because I've been out here. It looks like the GC looks really congested, doesn't it? Jack Haig is, is in the leader's jersey by a whisker as we speak. And yeah. um, load of people in the mix still. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happening there and how many more GC days there are. But Dylan, Dylan Groenewegen seems to be smashing every sprint don't know who he's sprinting against so obviously i'm thoroughly well informed but um there we go yeah i think it's not many sprinters normally go to the valencia because yeah. it's quite a hard race but it from what it says christoph's there ben swift was fourth on that first with oh, yeah. Vergen. so it's a uh, fabio jacobson christoph swift uh that's and degan Cobb's in there but none of the real big names apart from Vergen. And um, and we've got the uh, the Saudi Tour de Saudi, which is a, a thoroughly uh, morally reprehensible <laughs> operation, mm. but it's happening and they're racing. And if we stuff politics to one side, it's a sprint fest. Um, yeah, and an opportunity yeah. for Nasabuani to win a, a race. <laughs> yeah (laughs) maybe only one of his few for the year but yes i mean that's that's so we've got those kind of four fronts of spain france the middle east and australia with the herald sun tour so they're coming off the back of tour down under they had the the cadell evans geelong classic and now they're into the herald sun tour and then the effectively the australian season comes to an end uh, as it then everyone ships out and comes back over here yeah, and uh, Mark Cavendish obviously is doing his his thing, his rather frustrating, you know, thing in uh, um, in the, his new team. Uh, they've got a win. Phil Bauhaus got a win, and actually, uh, Cavendish played a pretty significant part in that, from what I understand. You know, riding on his on his wheel, he then kind of sat up or just eased off a little bit to allow a gap to open up, and kind of bluffed everybody. And Bauhaus took advantage of that, so that sounds quite fun. Um, and just a little hat tip to my um, the friend that, that my son's. No, I'll get this right. My friend's son, uh, Phil, who I ride with down at uh, Hernhill Velodrome, who you've briefly met, his son Fred is making his debut for uh, the Bahrain team alongside Mark Cavendish. Fred Wright is riding with him, so he's worth a mention too. And so too is Daryl Impey, who has won the South African Individual Time Trial Championship, David, for the... How many times? Oh, have a guess. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go... Three. Nine. Ninth time... <laughs> and at the other end of the age spectrum um, and slightly before we're slightly sort of old news but it does tie into what we're going to talk about I think is um, Remco Evenepoel huh, 
one in San Juan, the overall. Um, oh, and, and I tell you what, though. I mean, I read the report on that afterwards. It's yep. an absolute madness what he did. He, in the crosswinds before the summit finished, Chase ended up chasing almost on his own the front group for, for 20 kilometers, caught yep. them at the bottom of the final climb, yep. and then still finished fourth or fifth. I he mean, needs to calm down, doesn't he? He just needs to calm down a bit. He's it's terrifying. <laughs> and we should, all, we should also little, uh, doff our hats, although it's not, uh, let's say, our, our speciality in cyclocross, Matteo van der Poel just yep. continuing his reign of terror. Yeah, before yeah. he moves on and, and brings it to cycling, road cycling. It, well, he's completed it, hasn't he? It's just completed. Yeah. You know, it's that phrase. Um, and uh, and I, I don't really understand, the, you know, the nuances of cyclocross, as I've repeatedly said. But from those who know, it is a significant uh, result that Tom Pidcock managed to get the silver medal in those at the, at the elite level. Um, and he's a good few years younger than uh, Mathieu van der Poel, but he puts himself in, in, in the frame now to really kick on and take over if Mathieu, Mathieu van der Poel eases off. So... Yeah, there we go. That's a good result. Um, Very good. The Far East. Okay, so I've come to Malaysia for the first time, David, in my life. Mm-hmm. And I've touched down, and then we flew straight from Kuala Lumpur to the region. There, there, are, there are two states that belong to Malaysia, Malaysia on the northern island of Borneo. Or sorry, the north part of the island of Borneo, which itself is the third biggest island in the world, which I didn't realise. Jeez. Um, and we went to the, the top right-hand corner of Borneo, at first, which is, if you look at it on a map, it's very close to the Philippines. I mean, it's just bonkers, the geography of that region. Yeah. And um, there was a criterium race before the Tour de Lankari got underway in a, a place called um, Kota Kinabalu, which is the capital of the state of Sabah, which the Japanese occupied in the Second World War and then the Allies bombed flat. And it's a pretty charmless, rather run-down sort of a place uh, where wonderful people live, surrounded by some of the most fecund countryside I've ever seen in my life because it's basically tropical isn't it um and I'll tell you one thing David I have not adapted terribly well from Lewisham to to the tropical heat of Borneo and it made me think of your upbringing and your love I think and great affection for the Far East that you've always had yeah I I don't think you ever truly adapt I mean I remember I was when I was in Hong Kong in the 1990s we still didn't have air conditioning in our school and we had summer uniform, winter uniform, and then in summer we'd actually have the hours were curtailed massively because of the heat, and you'd just be com- constantly drenched. But it's it, Southeast Asia for me is, and I think you hit the nail on the head as well there when you said the wonderful people. There's just such a a, a lovely radiance when you go everywhere. Everyone seems so welcoming and and happy, even in when we abject poverty a lot of the time. And it's it's just there's. There is such a, a, an amazing vibe to it all, and the history and the, as it the complex, bloody geography. I mean, the geography oh. is just an absolute cluster. I mean, I lived yeah. there for five years and have been going back so uh, often, and yet still, it just blows my mind, and the scale of everything as well. Ah, oh, the scale and the complexity, not only of the geography, but of the um, the interplay of religions and cultures and ethno- ethnographies. Um, it's very, very complex, isn't it? And uh, even to scratch the surface, is you almost want to throw your hands up in, in despair and go, I don't get it. I don't get it. But I, whatever I see, I quite like. And um, yeah, yeah you're, you're right. I, I'll be absolutely honest. And anyone who's seen any coverage of the Tour de Lankawi on telly, it's not the finest work. But um, I'm actually working... I'm working very closely with my Malay colleagues on this race. I'm kind of part of their operation, the host broadcasters. And they are trying their hardest, but they're a little bit out of their depth. And at the end of every day, they ask me, was that okay?" And the honest answer (laughs) is, it was so far from okay as to be completely risible. Um, 
but yet the answer I give every day is it was absolutely fine because <laughs> I honestly can't bring myself to be. Oh, I just it couldn't do it, could you? It no, just, you, you, you just couldn't. Watch them crumble. The goodwill and the passion with which yeah. they're going about it. It doesn't quite match their their understanding of what they're, they're up to, which is a shame. Um, and sometimes it's worth just to credit the effort rather than the output. Yeah, stage one, yeah. David. <laughs> stage one. I, I when we were on Borneo, it's slightly improved now. We're on the mainland, but on stage one, um, uh, into Kuching, I was commentating from uh, a people carrier, the back of a people carrier, with a telly balanced on my knees. Um, and I'd been commentating for an hour and a half all on my own like that without any air condition, rolling in sweat so much so that um, wow. the sweat was dripping onto my handwritten notes and I couldn't read anything any longer. But it didn't really matter because with about eight kilometers to go <laughs> and a fascinatingly poised race, my, <laughs> my telly basically went completely black. Now, you and I have been there before on the Tour de France <laughs> last year, but we had the best people on earth to remedy the situation. I had eventually a bloke open the, the side door of the, <laughs> of the van I was in and start fiddling around with, you know, those coaxial cables that you get in the back of oh tellies? Oh, God, yeah. He, yeah. he started unscrewing it and then getting a soldering iron out. <laughs> Whoa. And at that that's point, I realised... Southeast Asia. Uh, that's, at this point, I realised I wasn't going to get any more television pictures, was I? It wasn't going to happen. So I, I started looking at my microphone cable to see how far it would stretch out of the minibus looked at where I was parked and realised at a push I might be able to carry it across to the barriers and actually watch the race come in with my naked eyes. So although I was technically still broadcasting and telly, I just walked out of the van (laughs) and waited waited for a good three or four minutes describing the school children by the side of the road, uh, the old colonial buildings around me. And then eventually, Evgeny Fedorov coming and taking the stage victory like that. They and I felt like make a show about you. Oh, mate! These I, travels. I, I, I felt like I felt like it must have been like broadcasting the early Tour de France, you know, in the, in the 1950s and everything. Actually, using your eyes rather than a telly. It was <sighs> it was quite an adventure. That. It was quite oh, an adventure. God. Anyway, um, today, so t- we've had two stages of Tour de Langkawi, and it's worth mentioning because it's a race that gets a bit overshadowed. And as you say, actually, David, it's quite interesting when you said that. You know, you noted that they're still racing down under the Herald Sun Tour. South Africans are doing their thing with their national championships. They're, they're racing in Arabia, racing in Spain, racing at the Etoile de Bessage. They've just finished in... And Asia gets squeezed out of all of this. And the Tour de Langkawi is the most prestigious and oldest of the great Asian stage races because, you know, it's quite a new thing. But this race is 25 years old. And, um, and uh, it's suffering a little bit from a slightly... There's only one World Tour team here. And on stage one, it's NTT who have won this race, as Dimension Data, uh, three times in the last five years. And um, they made a right Horlicks of it on stage one, totally underestimating this kid from the Astana development team, uh, Evgeny Fedorov, who's 19, who just rode away from them all. He's in the leader's jersey. Stage two, which was today, he defended perfectly happily his his race lead. And um, the big world tour sprinter, Max Walscheid, was denied victory on the line by a 19-year-old unknown from Australia called Taj Jones, who rides for the ARA Pro Racing Sunshine Coast team, which is quite a mouthful when you're commentating a on a bunch of name. And yeah. um, anyway, I don't know much about Taj, except I noted how he went in the Criterium race, and he finished in seventh place there, and I thought, oh, OK. So I knew who he was when he crossed the line and punched the air. And um, shortly after that, I grabbed a quick word with him. 
talk us through it because it, it seemed to come from nowhere and your team were pretty much invisible throughout most of the, the lead up which is the right thing to do I guess yeah so yeah the tactic today was just wait 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 and make the late dash towards the end um, and yeah my team did an incredible job to get me towards the front and and yeah really we were boxing on there for a while and yeah they put me into the perfect position towards the end to come off my max in the last 200 meters so I was pretty stoked with that I mean, it was a technical finish, wasn't it? The last with the two left-hand turns with 600 metres to go. And then there's quite a headwind as well in the last couple of hundred metres. Yeah, definitely. It was um, obviously everyone's riding, riding into it pretty blind, so not really knowing what to expect. Um, so you kind of kind of just play the waiting game and, yeah, um, yeah, made the late, late dash in the sprint and ended up, yeah, getting the, getting the biscuit. So it's pretty hard. Is that the biggest win of your career, do you think, in terms of prestige and profile? Yeah, yes, definitely. It's uh, one of my only wins of my career. So, yeah, just pretty stoked with it, yeah. Yeah, and to beat a guy like Max as well, he's sitting alongside you, so it's a little bit awkward just talking about this, but he's a World Tour rider. He's won some big races, and he'll go on to win some big ones as well. That must give you great confidence. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I was pretty pretty surreal at the moment. Um, yeah, didn't expect it, but um, I'll take it. Thanks. Tell us a bit about your background, where you, where you come from, and what, what got you on a bike in the first place, Taj? Yeah, so I come from the Sunshine Coast, um, riding with the ARA Pro Racing Sunshine Coast team um, out of the university there. Um, so what are you studying? Um, at the moment, uh, not doing much at the moment. <laughs> How to win sprints. Yeah, yeah, studying, studying them, yeah, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty, yeah. Where do you see your future? I mean, if this is what you're capable of, what does that tell you? Um, yeah, so I'm only only 19, so just starting out, and this is my one of my first years racing overseas. Um, so yeah, I was just happy to ride a bike at the moment and just see where it can get me. Do you see yourself as a as a road racer, as a sprinter? Is that kind of the rider you want to be? Yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely on the road. Um, yeah, if not uh, in the classics, um, definitely something I like to. Obviously, that's one of the things I like to sit up and watch uh, the classic races. Um, but definitely something like Tour de France one day, hopefully. Amazing. Well, well done. Great. A good new name to reckon with. There's so many 19-year-olds making their mark. A 19-year-old race leader at the moment, and now a 19-year-old stage winner. In fact, two 19-year-old stage winners in two days. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just showing how, how good the young guys are coming through and the guidance we get from the older guys really developing us at a younger age. Does it kind of inspire you that right at the highest end of cycling, guys like Remco Evenepoel, are tearing it up and the guy who won the Tour de France is just three years older than you, Egan Bernal. Does that inspire you? Yeah, definitely. You know, you see they can do it and why can't we? So it's very, very inspiring, definitely. You're about to step up on the podium at a really quite prestigious race. It's going to feel great, isn't it? Yeah, it will. And uh, couldn't wouldn't have been possible without my team. So no, Absolutely. You're quite right. And are people watching back home because it's just, what is it, early, well, no, early evening there? Uh, yeah, they're two hours in front in front of us here so yeah just mum and dad and my two nans will be at home watching as obviously my girlfriend will be there watching so yeah super proud well done Taj nice to meet you nice to meet you Max Ein Wort bitte Enttäuscht? Yeah of course I'm disappointed because my teammates uh, did a good job uh, in the end I did my very best I got over sprinted so uh, congrats to the winner Really, I mean, you, you, you won the Criterium in Sabah a couple of days ago and it looked like you were about to smash the Tour de Lankawi to bits the way you're sprinting, but it's been frustrating the first couple of days for different reasons. 
Yeah, I mean, yesterday uh, we cannot do much about it. Uh, we didn't get much help from the rest of the bunch, um, so it is like it is. So I try to do my best today again, um, but uh, today I underestimated the last two corners because it was just a crazy dangerous parkour. And um, I didn't want to crash, and then it was pretty strong uh, headwind and the final 200 meters. So in the end, uh, I died a little bit in the last 50, but uh, was still a good effort. There's more to come from you in this race, isn't there, Max? Yeah, you can count on that. <laughs> all right, well done. Thanks a lot. So there we go, David. It is all about 19-year-olds, isn't it? And ge- genuinely, we kept making the point last year, didn't we, that about the paradigm shift, and it seems to have continued unabated into 2020. It's great. Yeah, it's it's just it's a new it's a new facet to the sport. I've never seen anything like it, and it, it doesn't seem to be an anomaly anymore. This seems to be an absolute tidal shift in in what's possible and these young riders coming through so it's it's great and it's really exciting i think for everybody it is indeed um now another familiar face out here in uh in malaysia is graham jones who of course raced the tour de france back in the day the anc halford's days and um lives out in the far east now and he is uh He's the sort of technical director of a lot of races out here. And he's been joined um, in the car that he's driving. He's the technical director of the Tour de Lankawi by his old mate, John Herity, who you know very well. I know very well. And um, I yesterday in Kuching, I grabbed a quick word with John as well. OK, so I'm here at the finish line of um, stage one. Feels like stage two. I've been getting that wrong all day. Stage one of the Tour de Lankawi. Um, I've just bumped into... Uh, Jez Hunt, who's the manager of Terengaro TSG, one of the big, well, the big Malaysian team, really, and had a word with him. It's been a puzzling day's racing in more ways than one. But the great thing is I've got a familiar face alongside me, a bloke I've known for a decade or so, um, John Herity in Malaysia. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see a friendly face. <laughs> Not that the Malaysians aren't friendly. No, they're everything, they're, they're everything they're, and their friendliness is their hallmark. It's just uh, it's unusual seeing you here and not in Stoke and Trent or Redditch or something like that, John. Quite not at all serious for a change. Yeah, nice to be at an international stage race again. What are you doing here? I'm driving for the race director. The race director is Graham Jones, a guy that uh, we kind of most older followers of your podcast will know as an ex Tour de France rider and has been involved in the sport for many many years. Has now moved out to Asia and, and looks after a lot of the uh, works on a lot of the Asian uh, races at UCI level. So he's the technical director of this race, and it's not it's not without its challenges. I mean, it's a great race, isn't it, with a lot of heritage already. This is the 25th year, but each year, it's, you get the impression it's not easy necessarily to get on. No, it's uh, it's kind of almost like two steps forward and one step back all the time. I mean, I've been, I think this is my fifth or sixth edition of the race, and it's, uh, it's seen a number of different organisers that have brought in technical people. A lot of British, um, you know, a, a lot of British interest in the race over the years. Uh, Alan Rushton was here in the past. Pat McQuaid was here as well. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of British influence in the race, and you can see touches of that, but it still is a challenge with the way different states work. Um, so, yeah, it's been a challenge for Graham, for sure. I mean, back in your racing career, John, in the 80s, was, was, that, was racing in Asia a thing? 
No, it wasn't. We, uh, I think uh, I went to do the Tour de Trump one year. In, Did you? Yeah. Hang your head in shame, young man. Did you really? I didn't know that. Uh, and I shook his hand, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. So, yeah, there's only one worse thing was, was getting a picture of Jimmy Savile, well, my daughter, with, on Jimmy Savile's <laughs> knee when he came to do the Tour de Trump. The worst thing I ever did, basically. So, yeah, uh, no. So Asia wasn't, uh, wasn't a thing back then. We've seen the scene grow over the years. And the teams that I've looked after, uh, actually, yeah. in the past... We've embraced Asia. We've gone over there. Certainly, Rafa is a company who was one of our early sponsors of one of the incarnations of the teams that I've uh, you know, worked with. Uh, they were very big on you know on pushing their product out in Asia. And it's very very big over in, certainly in the capital cities of uh, yeah. Taiwan, Malaysia, and, and Japan and Korea and so on. So uh, yeah, no, we've seen a massive rise in uh, in you know the way the sport has grown over here, and you're now seeing more and more of the continental teams coming over as part of that sort of adventure aspect. You know, the sponsors have like they've, they've, they've maxed out on what they can do in Europe, so they're looking for yeah. different types of pitches, which is exactly what Rafa wanted. They wanted sort of of uh, you know pictures the same sort of racing pictures that you see in Europe but with a bit of you know different backdrops you know palm trees and not just palm trees I mean that's a little bit you know that's a, a bit of an obvious shot but that that sort of thing uh, something a little bit different for the people that follow them yeah it looks brilliant it's a beautiful country isn't it we're on the island of Borneo which is somewhere I never thought I'd go I just read about it in books when I was a kid and poured over um, you know, the images of it in an atlas, it feels so exotic. And it is, isn't it? It's massively different. Obviously, massively different. Uh, I mean, Malaysia is, is, is pretty well developed as well in, in, in the, for those Asian countries and uh, that we do visit. This is actually one of the better ones. Uh, so, yeah, it's, 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 as I say, it's nice to be back. Yeah. It's a great race. As I say, it's been going for 25 years. It's, it's had its problems, um, but um, mainly financially, <laughs> with money disappearing in different places. Yeah. Sort of thing, but the tourism board here has always backed it, and it's uh, you know it looks like it's back on an even keel now with a, a lot of checks and balances being put in place by the government and so on. Because at the end of the day, the money is coming from tourism Malaysia, or well, the majority of it is. Even though they got Petronas as a you know as one of the sponsors, it's still a, a state company. As far as I know, it's a state company. Yeah. As well, yeah. So um, yeah, uh, well, so some money coming from that. Most of it is uh, you know government driven. You touched on it earlier when you said when you used to bring your Rafa Condor team out here back in the day. Uh, I think Richard Hanley, it wasn't the, the Tour de Lankawi, but it was Tour de Korea, was it? Yeah, no, it, bizarrely, uh, even though I'd worked on the race, I came very in, in uh, with recycling one year, and I'd come with the GB team uh, two or three times, and I actually worked on the race as a, a member of its staff as well when uh, Alan Rushton uh, you know, um, ran the race for them. But actually, when I got the Rafa Connell team, I could never get in to the Tour de Lankawi. Lankawi. No, no, so yeah, but we've you had... did a bunch su- of others, didn't you? You used yeah, to go to Korea and Taiwan, I think. We've had success in, Ka- uh, you know, in, in Korea, Richard Hanley and Mike Cummings won the race overall. That's right. Yeah. So, um, no, we've had some success in Asia. It's uh, a great stepping stone, isn't it, for, for Australian and British kids to come over and, and, and pro- you know, properly race against some good pros. Yeah, well, bizarrely, I think now sort of con- uh, you know, world tour teams, pro continental teams, are actually looking at the types of rider that do do well out here because they've all now got business interest in it. It's too expensive now to sponsor a cycling team not to look at this side of, uh, of you know, of what their sponsors, you know, sponsors want. So, 
riders that can perform well over here, and I think you even see it in World Tour, the riders that they send to Australia sort of at the start of the year, it's those journeymen, the ones that can cope with that travel and, and actually want to do it. I've spoken to uh, one of the managers of the, the, you know, the B&B team over here as well. He says, he loves coming here. It's great. And, and, you, you, and you find the riders that really, really want to do it. They want to come here. And sure, you know, cycling's hard. So to be able to see a little bit of the world at the same time, it's, it's, not a, you know, it, it's a nice to be able to do it. Yeah, and and um, you know we're sitting here at the end of st- stage one, sort of scratching our heads as to how the the race developed as it was. If you didn't know, and you're forgiven for not following it, um, should have been a bunch sprint today. It was a circuit race in and out of Kuching, which is the capital of the state of um, Sarawak. No, it's not Sabah, is it? It's the other one. Sarawak. Thank you. I got that wrong in commentary today. Not the only thing I got wrong. Um, and I wasn't the only person who got it wrong today because the peloton with the World Tour team NTT, who have their big German Max Wildschweid just got it massively wrong and two riders got up the road and never looked back and and the, the rider who won is just that kind of rider we're talking about 19 year old Evgeny Fedorov from the Astana development team he's a name for the future isn't he yeah absolutely you know the uh, the big team's got it wrong I think there's a, an element of brinkmanship went on it's the first stage and nobody wants to commit too early on so uh, there was a little period in the middle of the race as well where the radios weren't, weren't as good as perhaps we'd have liked them to have been so all of a sudden <laughs> I was commentating god knows where my commentary ends up apparently you were watching it in your car which is slightly embarrassing but um I was commentating for the last 8K for a, on a completely black monitor. It just went dead, so I had no idea what was going on. In the end, I got quite old school, John, and I, I was commentating from a minibus. Literally, that was my studio, right on the finish line. I managed to drag the cable out the side of the minibus and w- actually watch with my eyes the finish of the race and call him over the line. Well, we were actually, uh, the, the, I mean, to be clear, I'm driving the car, so I wasn't actually watching myself, but uh, Jeff Keene, a, a journalist, a French journalist that lots of people know, uh, he was watching it on the, the, Facebook, uh, the Facebook feed sort of thing and you you came across we heard you loud and clear to say that your monitor went black and uh, we did have a little chuckle to ourselves <laughs> of course you did of course you did no, the, uh, certainly the, I think the, the manager's got it slightly wrong yeah. today, uh, for sure. But in terms of, you know, for the race and for the... And also, you know, when you when you sit down and talk to your riders before the start of the stage as a manager, you know, you always say, well, let's try and get in the break today. What's guys. the point? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. And, uh, you know, stays like these when it's all worth it. Absolutely. Um, we're a million miles away from the UK in all sorts of ways. It's 26, 27 degrees here, boiling hot, really humid. And the UK is suffering from February shivers at the moment. Um, John, you miss, uh, you're missing from the UK scene. And it's not been the same without you. You were, you were the UK scene with your Rafa team for many, many years. Um, two questions, I guess. One is, why the hell aren't you back in the sport? I kind of assumed you'd be straight back in it. And secondly, where's the sport? Well... The easy, the easy one to uh, answer is we're not in the sport because we've not found a sponsor that is uh, you know big enough to do to, to the level that I would be prepared to get back involved again. Uh, I think the scene has taken a you know a big hit in the UK with uh, ourselves losing our sponsor and you know Madison pulling out as well. Uh, it, it now means that it, it's kind of reset it a little bit and uh, there's just not the money there at the moment and I've been in all the years that I've been doing it you, you talk about preparing documents to give to marketing companies and so on to to, 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 to put proposals together I, 
I'm, I'm not of the opinion that that works at all. You, you need to find somebody within a company that really, really wants to do it. And then once he agrees to do it, then he walks into his own marketing department and says, right, we're going to sponsor a cycling team. It's going to be this amount of money and you know, make it work. And then that marketing company then tries to reinvent the wheel and tell you how they're going to do things differently. And you end up hopefully signing a contract for three years. One year you fight with that marketing department, trying to explain to them how it, cycling works. Second year, usually a little bit better. Third year is usually your best year. And then... Yeah, again, you're looking for another sponsor. So, no, I'm definitely missing it. No, no question about that. Uh, I would, uh, I would love to get back involved, but I only want to get back involved if, the, if it's you know at the right level with the with the right you know amount of funding sort of thing. So, and that's proving difficult. Brexit's not helped, I have to say, because not necessarily Brexit per se, but it's just been easy for companies to say no, so, and, and give them that excuse sort of thing. So that's that's been the problem. Um, and the, the, the worry about the race is the race program is another concern isn't it and it's it's the opposite of a virtuous circle isn't it the one seems to be dragging down the other at the moment absolutely i mean it's always been a chicken and egg you know what comes first the teams or the races or the races or the teams and the two go hand in hand and i don't think it's for lack of trying but it's uh you know it's getting more and more difficult for individual organizers to you know to put races on the cost of it is increasing all the time the risk factor in particular for an organizer is getting you know more and more onerous um so you know, I look at it and think, why would you be an organizer in the UK? You know, when you actually run the risk of being, you know, sued personally. You know, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, British Cycling do support the, the organizers uh, uh, as well, but you'd still have it hanging over your head. You know, anything, you know, that anything did happen. So, um, very, very, very difficult for organizers. And, and you know, at the end of the day. I know it's not our national federation's job to actually take over and put the events on. That's not that's not their remit. That's not that's not the remit of any national federation. And I know they've helped out you know individual events over the years. But if you if they continue to do that and you don't find these individuals that are willing to you know put races on, you know the sport will die. I mean, all even you know even football with all its money at grassroots level still has to rely on volunteers. Uh, uh, you know at that level. So it's no different in you know in our sport and you do need those people and it's just about finding those people and, and finding a new breed if you like to, to come along you've got those traditional organizers people like you know Lincoln Grand Prix which had Ian Emerson and then um, what's then took over afterwards um, it's but it, you know even that, that uh, you know what is a, a national institution almost in cycling terms even the Lincoln Grand Prix is finding it difficult to find a sponsor which uh, sets a really bad tone doesn't it it almost feels to me John as if Everybody involved, and you know, I put my own line of work in the same category as well. The TV, all the stakeholders in their various different way need to get around a table. You know, that wouldn't be the worst thing because you get pockets of discussion and vested interest talking to themselves. But if, unless, like you say, chicken and egg, the chicken and the egg have to be in the room at the same time. Absolutely, and I, I mean, I know British Cycling has had to have a, it's kind of had to have a clean up. But there's a lot of new people in there who his, don't have any historical knowledge, if you like, of, of the sport. And I, I sometimes actually feel that they're trying to reinvent the wheel themselves there a little bit. And I think they need to get a few of the uh, older people back involved again. And uh, if, if not in an official capacity, but in, in, you know, in some ways, uh, get them around that table and, and get some feedback from them, you know. 
So in, in your personal t- terms, you haven't given up on this yet. I mean, you're going to you're gonna battle away and see if you can get back in. Absolutely. I, I, um, but, you know, it's just finding somebody. But you could come across them tonight. I could come across them in a restaurant tonight. Or, you know, it, it's, it's, it's as bizarre as that, to be yeah. honest. It, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you've only got to look at what, you know, um, you know Sadeo Brailsford, yeah. Yeah, Brailsford has done with, uh, with yeah. Ineos, you know, finding that sort of sponsor, um, which is a, you know, it's a guy, you know, he's not bothered about you know the publicity that he gets he just he wants to you know put something back into sport and he loves elite sport he's found in a way the perfect type of sponsor uh, he's a sponsor that doesn't actually need coverage yeah. uh, who's the perfect guy to be honest and uh, that's uh, you know, doesn't surprise me if anyone's going to find it so Dave was the guy that was going to find it yeah. alright well I'll let you get it you've got to drive Graham Jones to the airport haven't you and yeah. Over to the mainland? We go over to the mainland now, and we uh, I think Graham himself will be a little bit calmer once he reaches the mainland. He's got, <laughs> he has a little bit more. He's control. been tearing his hair out, but that yeah, doesn't really apply to you or him, does it? No, no, no. Thanks for that then. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, good to see you here, and right, uh, I hope your monitors improve. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, John. Uh, John's a great guy, isn't he, David? And it's a real shame that his knowledge and his the way he works with people, especially, um, and his expertise. Don't have a home at the moment because he's got he's just got so much to offer. Yeah, he's a he's a wonderful man. I I mean he's helped me a lot in the past from from my earlier days where taking me on trips and then even during my ban, uh, he was one of the few people that stood up and helped me. And we went on a training camp together, me and him in the Pyrenees. And he's he's more than a DS. He's a brilliant uh, man manager and coach. He's he's such a, he kind of there's a very difficult line for a DS to to sort of walk is getting too close to the riders, but also keeping that authority. And John somehow manages just to walk that tightrope perfectly, where he comes into the room, he can be a shoulder to lean on, but you'll also respect what he has to say in the race. And yeah, it's, it's a shame he hasn't got a ride at the moment. He's done a little bit of work, I understand, with Bahrain team, that Rod Ellingworth gave him a ring, but it wasn't, wasn't directly related to DSing or anything. Apparently he was called on as a consultant to design and help design their catering, on-the-road on catering facilities, drawing on his background as a chef. <laughs> he was a trained yeah. chef as a kid, but no, he's better than that, and it would be nice to see yeah. John get back in somehow. Um, and that's it. But, th- I mean, David, any other business? When we, I was exchanging messages with you to set mm. this podcast recording up. You said something about a stick. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, this is... So, well, it's actually a Burmese army trekking stick. So that's north, just northwest of Thailand. And I, I'd complete... It's in my, my mad memory palace of a study office at home. My dad brought it back from one of his travels. And it's an amazing thing. And I just found the little, um, the little bit of blurb on it. Originally designed by Sir Geoffrey Hillpig Smith for British Special Forces stationed at Mandalay in 1941. But wait, wait, wait. What was his name? It's Sir Geoffrey Hillpig Smythe. Brilliant. Brilliant. So wait, I'm going to give you a brief sketch of Sir Geoffrey Hillpig Smith. Go for it. Born London, 1910. As a schoolboy, overweight, few friends, poor student, non athletic, yet plight. Called Hillpiggy by the staff. Harrow, 1928. Sent down from Oxford for indecency, 1930. Unsuccessfully <laughs> stood for Parliament as an independent from the small constituency of Luting on the Thames, finishing fourth in a field of three, 1934. 
Alcoholic, 1935. <laughs> Published at his own expense, an angry and spirited collection of short essays entitled Sticks and Stones, 1936. Alcoholic again, 1937. <laughs> Published a second collection of stories, essays entitled Mud Puddles and Other Outrages, 1936. Then it's a joint military intelligence and engineering. Assigned to British, British Special Forces Mandalay. Gets an injury, recovering from a minor fall, designed a military trekking stick in 1941. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's brilliant. <laughs> that is I'll send like, a picture that you can put in show notes. Uh, if he uh, if he if he existed in 2020, he'd be prime minister. Oh, I know he would be. Yeah, maybe he is. David, good to talk to you. Maybe we can maybe we can do another Tour de Lankawi update before I leave this fair land. How about that? Definitely, I'd love that. Okay, All right. okay, All right. take it. Carry on. See, See you. Bye. bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 